0: Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, recording on Friday, June 17th, 2022, and today I am sitting down with US Senate candidate for the state of Washington, Brian Solston. Hello, Brian.
1: Hello, Bitcoin Dad.
0: Brian is a really interesting political candidate because he is a Bitcoin first politician. Now, that's not his entire platform, obviously. Representatives need to deal with the complexities of managing a state and representing its diverse communities, but Bitcoin is an important inspiration for aspects of Brian's policy. We're going to have a two-part interview. The first part will be exploring Brian's platform and his path to running for the U.S. Senate. The second part of the interview will focus on Brian's Bitcoin journey centered around a document he has written called Bitcoin Use Cases. Now, Brian, could you briefly introduce yourself and talk about how you decided to run for the U.S. Senate representing the state of Washington?
1: Well, I've been a Bitcoiner since 2017. When you get off zero and you start really learning about it, listening to podcasts, reading books about it, reading not only about the, let's say, technical aspects of it, but how Bitcoin, but also why Bitcoin. You start learning about why our monetary system is broken. And I felt this was a very important topic. And after spending you know, more than four years on it, I wanted to share my knowledge with my senator. I wrote my uh, House representative. She was very responsive and and actually quite helpful on some of the shenanigans that were being pulled by Mnuchin at the end of Trump's term. And so she was rather empathetic towards the uh, Bitcoin cause. She's in the 44th district. Her name is Delvaney and been very supportive. When I wrote Senator Murray, I offered my time to provide time to, to her staff members to provide education on what Bitcoin is, how and why. And uh, my, the response was for me to sign up. For her newsletter. And uh, I thought that was rather detached. And so, you know, after looking at some of her policies, clearly, she and I had some overlap. We're both, let's say, socially liberal, but I'm a fiscal conservative. And I would say she is a fiscal liberal to the point that I would just say, hey, she's, this is a classic Santa Claus. And Bitcoin fixes that. I believe that uh, we have four decades of a monetary system getting worse, and it's increasingly becoming more broken, eviscerating the middle class. And these are messages that I cannot communicate to neither to my senator nor to her staff. And so I decided I'm going to run myself and I'm going to bring these topics to the front of the campaign.
0: Fix our broken monetary system is the first point on your platform. In that Description you mention a website WtF happened in nineteen seventy one What did happen in nineteen seventy one and how does it relate to your platform?
1: yeah WtF happened in nineteen seventy one dot com is mostly a website just dedicated to different charts, and clearly it's when in August of nineteen seventy one Richard Nixon said that we would go off the gold standard temporarily. After the French sent over a warship and wanted their gold in exchange for U.S. dollars, we went to a fiat system, according to Richard Nixon, temporarily. But as you know, we are still on that fiat system. Just to take a look at what happened to productivity, how it continued to grow over the decades, yet real wages flattened out. So in other words, the money printer at the federal level more or less increasingly centralized the economy. In other words, these engineers and designers and other working class people in the United States were no longer really the beneficiaries of these gains, these productivity gains. That was more or less being hijacked by the the magic money printer at the Fed.
0: At the same time, this is the period where political representation and the division of wealth in the American economy moves away from the middle and working class and towards corporations and the super wealthy. Can you explain how this sort of fiat monetary policy supports wealth inequality?
1: When they artificially push the artif- the the interest rates down and they roll the debt over, you know, for the wealthy, for the financial class, for known entities, big organizations, big corporations, what happens is that is free money when they roll it to a a smaller interest rate. And they've been pushing down these Interest rates from 14% for decades down to what a ten-year note almost got down to three percent, and now we're starting to go back up. Point is, is that by artificially manipulating these interest rates down, it becomes increasingly a synthetic GDP, a synthetic economy, no different than a centralized economy operating out of, let's say, China. They're pretending that it's free market. The Treasury will issue some U.S. Treasuries, and then the Fed will buy them, and they're buying them from, let say, JP Morgan and so on. This whole process of smoke and mirrors is no different than printing the money out of thin air. And the beneficiaries of this is the financial class and the widening wealth gap has been increasingly getting wider ever since 1971. And in 1971, you would have said, oh, is fiat money slavery? Well, 1971, probably not. But now in 2022, to me, it is slavery. Uh, and inflation is an invisible whip. And we are in a situation where y- you may not agree with me. though That might be strong language. My friends will sometimes disagree with me on that language. But in a few years from now, you might start to agree with
0: me. A lot of people might find it difficult to imagine a system different than our current monetary system. Fixing our broken monetary system, how exactly does that happen? And what would be the shifts in income, wealth, political power? How do you see that happening? And how would you support that change
1: well let's look at history on the deviation from sound money it's happened many times in our history for example the roman empire they had the denarius silver coin and they started with seniorage melting it down adding tin or copper or or making it smaller and eventually slowly but then suddenly it was not valuable anymore it wasn't until the 14th century that the gold florin became let's say sound money again and that trusted, sound money allowed the free market to weave its fabric throughout Europe, which was one of the strong elements of creating the Renaissance 2.0. And if you look at the Weimar Republic, just before World War II, their fiat currency was being debased and slowly, but then suddenly people lost faith in that. I believe it was a mark. There's a long history of this happening over and over again. It happened in Venezuela. Venezuela. And so when that does happen, it is devastating, and we need to prepare for a soft landing because we know the U.S. dollar, thanks to the Fed and thanks to our Congress, that it is dying. If you look at history, it always gets debased because the temptation just to print money out of thin air is just too strong.
0: I believe that the U.S. dollar has lost 99% of its purchasing power since 1923, but to hear you describe the problem with fiat money and money creation and inflation, it seems like it's happening everywhere. But how would a world based on fiat transition to a harder money or a money that can't be debased? Because wouldn't that necessitate some sort of financial crisis that could be devastating
1: we can transition to sound money and that boils down to one thing that is zero tax bitcoin and that is what i want to implement say start at 200 and then just keep moving the goal up to perhaps 600 then a ten thousand, then a hundred thousand and keep going and then over a period of 10 20 years we can transition from this broken monetary system to sound money and we can on the other side of this Have a Renaissance
0: 2.0. So, if I'm understanding you correctly, what you're saying is by creating a tax exemption for smaller and then larger Bitcoin transactions, you're creating space for a peer to peer economy, peer to peer exchange to happen. And so the idea is that this monetary good would slowly come into common usage, common adoption, and then over time it would kind of surpass the system that currently exists.
1: That's right. And if we don't do that, if we don't engineer a soft landing for the working class, we can look at history and see just how devastating it is. The debasement of the Weimar Republic mark, for example, was a predecessor to World War II. Even our homeless situation is an example of when we start debasing the currencies, we start monetizing all these assets. And push them out of reach to the working class. And really the only people that own things is the financial class. In other words, a few people owning pretty much everything. That's the direction we're going into if we don't engineer a soft landing for the working class.
0: Interesting. So to hear you describe adding a tax exemption to Bitcoin transactions, It almost sounds to me like this would be a policy that would work on both ends of the spectrum in the sense that on one end, you would have Bitcoiners or people using Bitcoin without having to worry about taxes. So it would make adoption easier. On the other hand, more Bitcoin usage seems to move the efficacy and the power of money printing and fiscal policy away from the political class. Am I interpreting that correctly?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, it's, it's just more or less allowing people to dip their toe into this technology. Bitcoin is technology. For example, I went down to El Salvador and I didn't buy things with Bitcoin here in the United States. It would be a taxable event. You would have to pay capital gains.
0: Can you tell our listeners just a little bit about what happened in El Salvador before you went regarding Bitcoin?
1: Yeah, I went down there for about five weeks before Bitcoin became legal tender. I just wanted to use Bitcoin and get to know the people down there. And, and I actually spent some time just orange pilling people down there, teaching them about Bitcoin. And I took Strike down there and just set up my account down here. And we're, we're doing international transactions that would settle, according to what I saw, in less than two seconds. It would cost a penny. And if it was non-custodial, it would have been one 500th of a penny. And I did a really you know, cheesy one-off video of what I did down there, just buying a beer and posted it. And it totally went viral. People were were surprised by how easy it is. And in other words, I was using Bitcoin, but I was using the Lightning Network Rails. And it was converting from U.S. dollar here in in my U.S. account going all the way to El Salvador. It was converting from U.S. dollars to Bitcoin. And then when it went to, let's say, the Bitcoin beach wallet, it may have converted back to Bitcoin. It may have converted back to U.S. dollar. I don't know, but it's just whatever the end user preferred.
0: For those of our listeners who haven't had the pleasure of trying to use their home country bank card in another country, it generally is an expensive and sometimes unproductive undertaking. because. If you haven't phoned up your bank or your credit card company and told them that you're traveling, they'll usually lock your card if you try to do a transaction in another country because they'll interpret that as fraud. But even if you have made every preparation, when you use your debit card in a foreign country to get cash out of an ATM, that's actually a very complicated transaction between the ATM owner or service provider, their local correspondent bank, and then that local bank needs to somehow settle the transaction with your bank in your home country. And they're not necessarily directly connected. So that transaction might actually have six or seven counterparties. And that raises the cost. And as a result, you never get a very good exchange rate. There are often fees associated with that. And the system just doesn't work for a lot of people. What's interesting about using Lightning in El Salvador is this is actually a very flat monetary network because Bitcoin is the same currency in El Salvador and the United States. It's a really interesting story.
1: It's exciting because it's cheaper than Visa. Uh, The finality is within seconds rather than perhaps a month. A lot of people don't even accept Visa down there because they want to charge a much higher fee than what they charge up here. What is it, 3.5% up here and down there, 5%, 8%? They don't like Visa down there. They really want to operate in a cash basis. When we start doing this from smartphone to smartphone, and last September, only 30% of the people were banked. And so, all these unbanked people that were, let's say, selling water in a small shop in El Zante, could sell me a bottle of water and I just transfer it to their smartphone and they were banked on their smartphone. And not only that, they were part of the financial class now because this is not a credit based system. Bitcoin's different, it's a store of wealth. And as the network grows, anybody who's part of it is part of that financial class. They are not being excluded. So Roxy, who's down in El Zante, who's holding her money and holding it in Bitcoin, when people are investing this productivity and making gains and then storing that in Bitcoin, Roxy's a participant in these productivity gains. It's not being hijacked by a central bank that's making cheap rates so that the financial class can roll the debt into manipulated money that's been artificially reducing interest rates for the past 40 years. In other words, the productivity gains of technology, which is highly deflationary, is being hijacked by the financial class thanks to the Fed and the working class, the middle class, and especially the poor. They're being eviscerated. The wage earner Their wages are not going up at the same rate of inflation. They're losing. All around, this is accelerating the wealth gap between the working class and the financial class.
0: That's really interesting. And I think it brings it back to Washington State, because on the payment side, using lightning to pay for a beer instead of Visa, for a listener in Washington State, they might say, hey, Brian, I've got a Visa. I mean, I know it doesn't work all over the world, but it works here. So... Why do I need this Lightning thing? And I think you answered that because Lightning actually has a lower transaction fee than Visa. If we were all using Lightning in Washington state, overnight prices might be 3% lower because every transaction has a Visa processing charge and a minimum fee of 35 cents built in. So that actually could reduce prices quite significantly. The other thing you mentioned is how Bitcoin is a technology that allows workers or people who save in it to participate in the gains of productivity. Can you talk a little bit about how that works? Why does why is Bitcoin so different in terms of preserving your value as opposed to my checking account or my savings account where I get 1% interest if I'm lucky?
1: Well, in a credit-based system, in a fiat where everything is being run on debt and the target Fed says they're targeting 2% inflation. And of course, we're much higher than that. And so they're expanding the monetary system. And that money that's being expanded, they're hitting their 2% target. That means they're making 2%. And where is that money coming from? It's everyone that's invested in the US dollar in that network, not only in the United States, but everywhere in the world. They're losing that much money every year, 2%. And now it's, what, the CPI is 8.6. So they're losing that amount of money per year, 8%. And we know it's probably much higher than that because housing prices are going up like 20% and fuel prices are going up 50%. So let's just say it's double what the government is telling us. This is just like the Roman Empire seniorage. senior age. There is no difference. It is theft. And they're taking that money, using it to juice the economy. And that primarily benefits the financial class, not the work class. So how does Roxy become part of that financial class? Just by holding Bitcoin. When, when productivity gains happen, and that's highly deflationary, by the way, the cost of living is going to come down for people instead of prices going up. Think about that. As an engineer, as, as workers, we're, we're trying to make systems that are more efficient. And we are. We're driving amazing gains with technology, amazing productivity. So why is it when we're pushing prices down, how is it that prices are really going up year after year? And the reason why is because we have the magic money printer. We have a credit-based system and the Fed, they're showing that they cannot be trusted to not debase the currency more than that 2%. And in part to our Congress, they are not living within their means. And so what happens is that theft is continuing to grow. And so we're getting in a situation where this is not sustainable. If we were to have a Bitcoin network available, not necessarily dominant, just available. So people could have the option to have a soft landing. And what I mean by soft landing is we know that if you look at fiat histories, things often get bad. In other words, asset prices continue to accelerate housing, food, fuel, and it's not affordable to the working class. Look what happened to Venezuela. Look what happened to Lebanon. Look what happened to the Weimar Republic in Germany back before World War II. It's going to happen again. And I'm not going to say it's going to happen tomorrow, but we know it's getting worse right now. The next crisis might be 10 years from now. It might be three years from now. But we know that these other smaller fiats around the world, it's happening right now. It's happening in Turkey. So again, if we were to have a parallel system, a parallel monetary system, people like Roxy down in El Zante, people like myself, we could have real savings instead of a nominal savings. The real savings in U.S. dollar is negative. You're losing money. It's being taken from you. But again, if we are allowed to have a choice to exit, then we are becoming part of the financial class. It's radically inclusive.
0: Now, the last part of your monetary policy part of your agenda has to do with your opposition to central bank digital currencies, CBDCs. Now, at this point, I believe there are only two CBDCs in the world. One is in China, and I think the other, maybe Bermuda, some island financial center has a a test CBDC project, but generally speaking, these central bank digital currencies—they don't really exist yet. But when they are talked about by um, the World Bank or central bankers, the sense that I get is that these would be systems where you'd have a wallet, probably on your smartphone. It would be a direct account with the central bank. It would be tied to your citizen identification number. In the U.S., that would be our social security number, and every transaction would be fully KYC'd and sorry, KYC means know your customer. So it would be fully transparent to the central bank. And so the central bank would actually have all the information about every transaction in the economy. Now, I'm a privacy advocate. I don't think that democracy is possible in an environment like that. Why do you think that so many policymakers seem to think that a CBDC is a great idea.
1: This is the financial class. This is something they need to implement to continue their current system. Let me go back why I got into Bitcoin. I'm a privacy advocate also, Bitcoin dad. I got into it because I was very interested in privacy and I saw that taken away with the internet and how it evolved. I was into the TCPIP protocol, the internet, and the promises of all this decentralized internet, what it was going to bring in terms of productivity to the world. And it was transformed into something that I didn't expect. Between the United States and Communist Chinese Party and and Russian Republic, these filters were were set up. It was no longer really a decentralized network. And so I was following the Supreme Court ruling and, and how they said code is free speech, so I'm like, Yahoo, and cryptography is now protected. And then when Bitcoin came along and proved that even the Chinese couldn't break it, I was like, wow, this is awesome. I'm not a gold bug guy. I didn't come into Bitcoin because of the gold bug narrative. I came at it from a privacy angle. And then I learned about, you know, this gold bug narrative that has been going on since 1971. My history is looking at Bitcoin from a privacy perspective. And when we start talking about CBDCs, that is 180 degrees the opposite of what Bitcoin represents to me, an opportunity to give the internet a second chance of being truly decentralized the internet is really the velocity of data and bitcoin is the velocity of value and those two come together in a decentralized way that is going to enable unimaginable digital transformation of science technology engineering math manufacturing it's going to provide an opportunity that will benefit everyone. And we can accelerate the productivity gains that we've seen over the past four or five decades thanks to the internet. We can accelerate that leveraging Bitcoin and accelerating the velocity of value, not only in the United States, but everywhere in the world. The CBDC is worse than 1984. The amount of information with social credits, that the central government will have over its citizens. And if you think these KYC rules are bad, where the central government is violating your privacy, uh, the CBDC is 10x that. This is a central bank saying, we can get fiat to work if we have more information, if we have more control. That's not true. It's breaking down because of the growing debt, because they have to keep on expanding credit to make the system work. Even though technology is doing just the opposite. Technology is deflationary. And so here they are trying to raise prices again to keep the fiat system going, even though fewer and fewer people are owning pretty much everything. And we know that the abuses by centralized governments are increasing. For example, let's take a look at Canada, a demonstration with the truckers, shutting down bank accounts. Well, it's going to be a lot easier with CBDCs. And there's other examples. Look what happened with Hong Kong. Communist Chinese party moved into there, into Hong Kong and made Hong Kong basically one state with China. You know what happened to the wealth of the Hong Kongers? They could not move it out, but with Bitcoin, they could have. Now with the CBDCs, clearly they can reduce liquidity very quickly, which is more or less taking your property.
0: Yeah, that's actually discussed as a benefit of a CBDC because now monetary policy can be inflicted on the individual. We could live in a world where. We get an alert on our phone and the balance in our bank account is going to be reduced if we don't immediately go spend it in some approved part of the economy. And so they can juice growth numbers. It's a central planner's dream, a system like that.
1: And they will know every transaction that you have done. And this, this is dystopian. And they will issue... They could issue social credits on how you're spending your money. Again, this is a grave violation of privacy. So I'm a strong believer in private property. I think it's one of the things that set the United States apart from other countries in the world, and I would like to continue in that tradition.
0: Now, your second point on your platform is that you're a conservationist. I have to say that I feel like your support of fiscal conservatism has to do more with conservationism than traditional fiscal conservative talking points.
1: That's a big topic and I think most people politically speaking they either fall into two camps and and they think conservation means social and fiscal or they're liberal and they're social and fiscal liberal because you know that's the way the media likes to break it down because it's easier to market. But Really, if you conflate social and fiscal as being both have to be conservative or both have to be liberal, it's a giant disservice.
0: Well, are there fiscal conservatives left? Because there have been Republican-run governments very recently, and they certainly didn't reduce the government budget deficit.
1: Well, if you look at our history, it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or Democrat. They both have consistently increased our debt for decades. And the Republicans have done it. And so have the Democrats. I mean, spending $2 trillion to fight Iraq added to our debt. Even reducing taxes can also add to our debt. So the point is, is that both parties consistently add to our debt. Now, fiscal conservative, it's simple. You live within your means. We just can't do that in our current system because our current system is broken. Our current monetary system is broken. Our debt is going faster than our GDP.
0: And how does that relate to to being a conservationist?
1: Let me tell you one little anecdotal story. When I was a busboy up at Sundance in Utah, Robert Redford was having an occasion, it was a a Christmas holiday dinner, and I was just listening to Bob Redford speak, and he talked about the commercialization of Christmas and how it's ruining the spirit of Christmas. And for some reason, that really spoke to me. We live in a world where we have all this hyper-consumption, and what is important was the question that Bob Redford asked, and as a young person in my teens, it was a question that I've thought about over the years. When you buy Bitcoin, you start and Bitcoin really starts to speak to you, It really whispers to you. You start to learn that there's a contrast between sound money and our current system that we're juicing the economy with this Keynesian hyperconsumption. There is another way to live. Sound money does reward savings. Sound money does reward conservation. Right now, we cannot conserve in our current system.
0: I think what you're describing is that in a system where there's this need to constantly grow, and having a credit-based money means that if growth stops, then the interest on the debt that fueled that growth cannot be repaid. And so there must always be more growth, which means that At a fundamental level, we're always looking for more economic inputs, which means cutting down forests, paving over fields to build new structures and and things that we think will produce economic value. And maybe there is a short-term bias towards our thinking and economic planning. So do you think that your first point, fixing our broken monetary system, that actually would change the incentives around conservation? and development, maybe promote a longer term perspective on these issues?
1: Yes. Once you start to buy Bitcoin, you go on this path of sound money. We might be going through stagflation for the next 10 years, but on the other side of this stagflation, we could have a renaissance. We could start to reemerge relying more on a sound money monetary system. And, And if we do that, we can start experiencing something that I'm going to call it the Bitcoin singularity. Contrast that to GDP. GDP is very flawed. For example, you know, I could take my house, tear it down, build it again, tear it down again, build it again. Perhaps do that 10 times. And that would be adding to the GDP. But really, how does that relate to wealth? GDP's going up, but what is the quality of my life? Clearly, the cost of living is going up. Oh, you know, according to the Keynesian, that's a good thing. It's good for the hierarchy but it's bad for the people. Right now, people are storing their wealth they're monetizing the housing market or they're buying equities. And instead of having say a a five price to earnings ratio, they're, they're getting up to like 50. It has nothing to do with getting a return on investment in 50 years from now. They're hiding from our broken monetary system. So all these stores of wealth are being monetized and distorting our economy and creating all kinds of waste and all kinds of problems and even homelessness. So Bitcoin, if it's available, People can start to store their wealth in something that's not going to melt.
0: Because fiat does not store value well, because U.S. dollars in your wallet or in your bank account do not store value over time, because the purchasing power of these dollars is reducing at at least 2% a year, given the Fed's target, but currently is decreasing at at least 8.6%, but probably much higher. So people have to store their wealth in other assets. And as a result, assets that receive this inflow of wealth go up in value. And now we kind of live in a distorted economy because if people are storing their money in real estate, this drives up the price of houses. And so people who just want to live in houses and don't view them as a store of wealth, they get priced out and now they're homeless or They have to move to a less convenient place that they don't necessarily want to live.
1: That's right. We do not have a housing crisis. We have a broken monetary system.
0: Which is spilling over into housing markets and into other parts of the economy. That's a really interesting point. And so people could safely store their wealth in Bitcoin. They don't have to worry about inflation. They don't have to worry about sanctions or their Bitcoin wallet being frozen. It's just not possible to do that. And as a result, we could deflate all of these other asset classes and have an economy that's better priced, that would allow new businesses and opportunities to arise because all of these weird prices would be gone that hide. The sort of efficient use of our resources.
1: We are in a very special time in history where we're seeing a new asset class be monetized, and of course, in the early days, the volatility is high, and that will decrease. But I don't think the volatility is going to decrease right away, and the reason why is because we're going to see increased volatility in the legacy monetary system. You know, thanks to the uh, growing debt. Um, it's, in other words, the current legacy. Uh, fiat, not only the US dollar, but other fiats around the world, their volatility is increasing. And so people blame Bitcoin, but really Bitcoin's volatility has been going down over the past 13 years. But eventually... When we come out on this other side, the volatility on Bitcoin is going to be, I believe, rather small. As the, the Bitcoin monetary system becomes increasingly monetized, then you're going to see the volatility come down.
0: The last point on your platform is STEM leadership. I know that you are in possession of at least one U.S. patent. You studied mechanical engineering when, uh, when you were in college and you worked in aerospace so you clearly have a stem background why do we need stem leadership today in your opinion
1: well let, let me back up a little bit i just want to make one more statement about conservation i believe and i will fight for it, clean air clean water clean soil clean energy that to me is what conservation is about and of course there's that bleeds into a lot of topics but I am a conservationist. And as far as the STEM leadership, I have a proven track record of working within STEM throughout my career for decades in engineering and aerospace and software, STEM leadership. We can sum that up in really two words. It's really about the digital transformation of STEM. How do we accelerate that? I have a lot of ideas how we can accelerate that. And the problem is that we have our aging U.S. senators that don't understand what Bitcoin is, they're not interested in Bitcoin, they're not interested in technology, they are part of the privilege and they think things work just fine the way they are. When in fact, the digital transformation has brought so much productivity. In fact, all the productivity gains throughout history could be attributed to technology. And now that we're going through this age of digital transformation, this can be extended. You've seen it already with mail to email, paper calendars to digital calendars, from typewriters to word processors, from film movies to digital movies. Well, there's many other areas that we need to pursue. Also by the way, I'm a US patent agent and so I've written a lot of patents and certainly there's areas of digital transformation that could occur there too. So as a US senator I will invest, as far as STEM is concerned, in strategic areas that will bring large returns to everyone.
0: And specifically, what are some of those areas? Have you identified them yet, or are you still...
1: Well, if you look at the government processes that are in place right now, they're very, let's say, paper-centric. And a lot of senior people like it the way it is. But truthfully, we can greatly simplify current systems and processes just by pursuing the digital transformation, not only in science, not only in technology, but in engineering, in manufacturing. A lot of these technologies are walled up in gardens. And normally with patents, after 20 years, these technologies move into the public domain. But for some reason, that hasn't been happening very well. And for example, copyrights, the number of years the copyrights last, keeps on being extended.
0: I've heard that that's mainly due to Disney.
1: Disney and other large media. Yeah, we live in a desert now when it comes to public domain. And these things can be fixed. In fact, people that are contributing to the public domain, for example, NASA could play a much bigger role in contributing to the digital transformation.
0: You used to be all about STEM. And over time, that's changed slightly. And now some of those feelings you, you now have towards Bitcoin. Do you think that's because Bitcoin is a technological step change in monetary technology? And perhaps we haven't actually had monetary technology change for, you know, arguably several hundred years. The 1971 fiat standard, there's no technological change there. It's a political change. If
1: you look at history and you look at my history, I was raised in a religious family, in a large family. There was often. You know, what is good for the hierarchy is good for everyone. But as you grow older, sometimes you will no longer conflate those two items. Clearly, in the Roman Empire, when they were doing seniorage, they thought what was good for the hierarchy was good for the people, but it wasn't. And it wasn't until the 14th century that some of these decentralizing technologies, for example, the printing press came along, which mirrors what the Internet did for our generation decentralized data, for example, on these distributed networks greatly increased the velocity of data. The printing press did the same thing with knowledge. No longer could the state and the church control the flow of knowledge, but it was more, let's say, decentralized. That technology greatly contributed to the Renaissance, to the flourishing, to the growing productivity of the 14th century. And Bitcoin is a decentralizing technology.
0: It sounds to me like you think that With our current level of technology and with Bitcoin decentralizing access to the financial class, because anyone who uses Bitcoin is now part of the financial class, it almost sounds like you think we have the ingredients for another renaissance.
1: We do. And it's going to take us time to get there. But before we do that, we need to have two monetary systems competing with each other so that the transition can happen. We don't want to be in a situation where where we go through a sovereign default and everything falls apart. Not only would that cause deleveraging at the federal level and at the commercial bank level, it would cascade. It would be devastating. We don't want to go there. What we want to do, before that happens, we want to have a peaceful revolution, not a violent revolution. The way we can accomplish that, again, is by providing zero tax Bitcoin so that the working class can transition to a system where they can have real savings instead of having to be reliant on an intermediary where, you know, they have a history of debasing the currency. In other words, grafting off the system and taking the productivity gains and using it to use in a centralized economy that benefits the financial class, primarily the financial class. And of course, some of that trickles down, but really not so much.
0: Thank you for that in-depth exploration of your political platform. Just to summarize, there are three main elements, fixing the U.S. monetary system, conservationism, and STEM leadership. The way that you combine these three elements speaks to a optimism about technology, human potential, the ability to live in a clean, healthy environment. Can you just finish with an optimistic view for the future? Let's imagine that the policies that you think will be positive have been adopted. Forty years later, what sort of a world are we living in?
1: I'm a technologist, fundamentally, I'm really into technology. And I still continue to work on patents and engineering and design, and I love it. But there's a lot of Bitcoiners out there that think that we really don't need politicians to push the idea of fixing the broken monetary system forward. I strongly disagree with my fellow Bitcoiners on that one topic. The U.S. Senate is where the fight is going to be in terms of making Bitcoin legal tender. It's really not going to happen at the state level. The state level will help, but if you really read our U.S. Constitution carefully, It's going to happen in the Congress, meaning the House and the Senate. The best place for us to fix our broken monetary system is becoming increasingly political. And we just need to reduce all this overhead. This unnecessary legislation is creating huge amounts of waste. And we can greatly accelerate fixing our broken monetary system by putting our efforts into the U.S. Senate. I'm very optimistic about what can be done in the political sphere. And I encourage other Bitcoiners to take it seriously about advancing Bitcoiners in the US Senate, not only in the state of Washington, but in other states too. And to the people in the state of Washington, I want to say by enabling competition with our current failing US dollar, by ending this prohibition on Bitcoin. We're going to allow a healthy competition, and that will greatly reduce this widening wealth gap. And not only that, if we can demonetize a lot of these very expensive assets, we will make the state of Washington and the U.S. more competitive. Only after we do that can we bring engineering and design and manufacturing back to the United States. Right now, because we've artificially monetized all these assets— We are not competitive on a global level. Politicians who are running around with a victory lap because they spent more money don't really understand what the broken monetary system is. And they don't understand Bitcoin as a technology. And they don't understand it as a competing monetary system. By fixing our broken monetary system, we will be bringing quality jobs back to the United States. Not just printing, creating, and selling US treasuries as we have been doing so on an increasingly growing synthetic GDP for the past four decades. And it does not benefit the working class. It especially does not benefit the poor.
0: Thank you. Now, we are going to explore Bitcoin and your Bitcoin journey in more depth in our second part. That will be a separate episode. And we're going to focus entirely on Bitcoin, not just the intersection of Bitcoin and politics and the United States. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, June 17, 2022. And I've been speaking with Washington candidate for Senate, Brian Sulston. Thank you so much, Brian.